like to dedicate tonight's class in honor of my wife, whose birthday was today on Hey Tamas. Uh, may Hashem bless her with abundant, only, only good. All the, all the work that I do over here is only with her uh, encouragement, inspiration. So uh, I want to thank her for that. Thank her big time for that help. So I want to bench her. For Rashnas Brachan Atzlach on a wonderful good year and all the schus of all the good that comes out of Mayan uh, should shower her with blessings, with only with tremendous blessings and nachas from the children and good health and uh, a lot of other good. Only good. Thank you so much. And tonight's class has been dedicated the CD this week by the Smolyansky family in honor of two birthdays in the family, uh, both on the same day, the 10th day of Tammuz. One is Naftali Olava Shalom's birthday, and Yabad Lachayim Toivim, uh, their son Yaakov, whose birthday is on the same day, of his father Olava Shalom. May Hashem bless him with a Shnas Brach and Atzlacha with a wonderful good year with only, only bracha and mazel and only good things. And uh, for Naftali, it should be a great alias to Shammai. All right. Um, this week in Parshas Chukas, uh, is a very special and beautiful Torah portion. And um, I'd like to focus on something at the end of the parsha. At the conclusion of the Torah portion, the Torah really describes to us, in this parasha we have fast forward 40 years. The whole 40 years of the Jewish people in the desert happens in last week's parasha, Parshas Korach is still at the beginning of the 40 years. Parshas Chukas describes the passing of Miriam, and suddenly in a blink of an eye, 40 years have gone by, we don't hear any narration of the Torah for the first 40 years, I mean sorry, for what happened in between, but now we're 40 years later. And we're kind of ready to go into Eretz Yisrael. So it says how the Jewish people begin their last journey after they wandered for 40 years to enter into the land. So first they wanted to go through the land of Edom. But God told them they can't do that. Um, don't start up with Edom because you're not. They asked permission. They wanted to pass through Edom because between them... Uh, Edom was to the north I mean the land of Canaan was to the north and they were on the east I'm sorry they were on the south in the desert and to go into the land of Israel they could have crossed through Edom they asked permission from the king of Edom and Edom didn't give them permission and God says don't mess with Edom it's not time yet to take Edom's land this will be given to you in the days of Mashiach so they move further and they go further east and they begin to encircle the land of Moab 
Now, Moab was also not supposed to be meant to be the inheritance of the Jewish people. Also, only after Mashiach comes will we take that land as well as part of our, our the part of the land of Israel. Because those are the three lands that Hashem promised Avram Avinu will be given to us at the end of days. First seven and then another three. So God says, don't mess with Moab. So we went all the way, we encircled the land of Moab. First we were walking on the southern border of Moab. And then, I'm moving to the east. And then the Jewish people started moving up north. And they crossed and they passed the entire land of Moab. And then they came to the land of Ammon, and God says, don't bother the Ammonim as well. That's the third country that is going to belong to Israel after be part of the land of Israel, Be'ezot Hashem, very soon in the coming of Mashiach. Um, we passed through, over the land of um, Ammon, which is at the corner, and now we came to the land that was... No, 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 I made a mistake. Ammon is somewhere there, but not exactly on top of Moab. On top of Moab is the land of the Amorites, the Amorim. And that country, the Jews were allowed to, were supposed to conquer. And that's where the king of Amori was Sichon. And Sichon comes out to wage war against the Jewish people. But on the way, before the war with Sichon, before the Jews attacked the Amorites, or Amor, the Amori came out to fight with them, uh, the Torah describes how they passed the upper border of Moab, which is the border between the land of Moab and the land of the Amorites. In between Moab and the Amori runs a river. The river is called Nachal Arnon, the river of Arnon. The river of Arnon is running from east to west. It's flowing off the mountains and it's coming down into the Yam HaMelech. Now, Amalek, as we know, the Dead Sea is a very, very low place. And the river flows into the Dead Sea. The river goes through a very narrow gorge as it's making its way down in a deep valley. That, the river, the valley, that was the border between the Amorite land and the Moab land. The land that we are not to take, the land to the south of the river, the mountains on the south of the southern side of the river belong to Moab, and the mountains on the northern side, the other side of the canyon, is the Amorite mountain. It belongs already to Amori. So the northern part we were allowed to conquer, the southern part we weren't. Now the Jewish people were going to go through, at a certain point, through that narrow gorge. Over here is where the Torah relates that God performed incredible miracles for the Jewish people. Similar to the miracles that he did when he took them out of Egypt. He did such an amazing miracle that we didn't even know about it, and Hashem had to inform us about what happened. What happened was that these, the, the, there was a very, as we mentioned earlier, it was a gorge, a very narrow canyon where the river flowed. And um, on the top, and I guess you can, there's some kind of a, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a way you can walk on the side of the river at the bottom. Not in the water, but on the side where the Jews were going to go. Now, on the top, on the southern side, we're, we're the, so the ge- geological composition of the mountains was very unique. On the southern side of that gorge, where the Moavim, where the Moav lived, there were deep caves. There were cavities, caves in the mountain. 
indents. On the northern side, the land of the Amorites, there were protrusions, boulders sticking out. And it actually matched, one matched the other. So if you have geologists go and look at, look at that uh, land, of course they would come to the conclusion that maybe you know, 50 billion years ago there was some kind of whatever it happened over here, or an earthquake or something, and this broke apart, and that's why it's really one land, because you can see one really matches the other. But when you hear the story, you see that after all, there is a God who created the world, and he could have created things with certain design, even if without breaking him one from the other. So the way God had intentionally created it was to be this way. The protrusions on one side matched exactly the indents and the caves that were on the other side. Why? In order to perform an, an unbelievable miracle for the Jewish people. What happened was the Emirates. And Rashi says they're so close to each other that one can stand on one side of the mountain and talk to his friend on the other side. So you're talking about a very narrow gorge. The Amorites, who are on the northern side, crossed over onto the southern side. I guess there wasn't such good border control by the Moabites. Or maybe they, for, to hurt, to harm the Jews, they didn't, they didn't mind. So the Amorites came across and they hid inside the caves. And their plan that they had was that when the Jews would go by unsuspiciously down in this narrow gorge, they would they would pelt them with stones, with arrows, with who knows what, and they would uh, cause, it would be a, 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 a surprise attack, and they would kill maybe thousands of Jews, and the Jews would be trapped right in the middle. And the Jews had no idea of this danger as they began passing through this narrow gorge. What happened was, Rashi describes it so beautifully, that the land on the northern side, which is the Amorite land, which was going to be possessed by the Jewish people later, wasn't yet, but it was going to be, got so excited that the Jews are coming to elevate it. It's going to become a Jewish land. It's going to be part of the land of Israel. And it's going to go out from the pagan Amorite people. It's going to go into the possession of the Jews. In its excitement, it, was up, it uprooted itself and walked towards the Jewish people. Meaning it moved a couple of feet, a couple of whatever, across. It's, Rashi uses the term, like a maidservant who goes out to greet her mistress. As her mistress is coming, think about the mountain. The mountain sees itself as a maidservant. The earth is the maid of the mistress, which are the Jewish people, where the mountain is going out towards her mistress. As she walked across, that means the northern side of the mountain came across to the southern side. And all the protrusions that were on that side of the mountain went into the caves and crushed and, grind, and, and grinded all the people that were hiding, that were in the, all those terrorists that were laying in, in hiding, they were all crushed by the mountain. Then the mountain went back, and, uh, and uh, that was it. Now the Jews didn't know about the miracle, when they, and then what happened was, the blood and the limbs and all of that came, no, first it was that the Jews went through, and they had no idea what happened. But God said, who's going to notify my children of the great miracle that happened? So he sent the well, now, exactly how to visualize is what's going on. I'm always, I never really understand. It would be good if someone can explain this to me. But whatever the well was, the well was this massive rock that accompanied the Jewish people, and it was mobile. It went along, and no one pushed it. They didn't have it on a truck. 
there was this big rock that, that gave the Jewish people water. And it followed them wherever they went in the desert. So this rock came along, and the rock went up into the hills. I guess it maybe spilled water into the caves. And it got the drainage. It pulled out the blood and the limbs and all the gory stuff. And it all came flowing down into the Nachal, into the deep valley below. Then the Nachal, then the Be'er, the well, went down into the valley, scooped up with the water, the blood and the limbs, and Rashi particularly says the arms, we'll see why in a minute, and it brought it all, it came to the Jewish camp, and suddenly you know, they have drinking water, and now they see blood and ha- arms and limbs and all that. And they realize what just happened, that Hashem was showing them the great miracle that He had performed for them. I'm sure they all went back to the place, and they were looking and figuring exactly out what had happened to them. And this was the big miracle. As a result of that, they sang Shira. Rashi says, the Rebbe actually, the Lubavitcher Rebbe learns that the reason why Rashi mentions the arms was because God particularly wanted to show them the great muscular arms of these fighters. So they were like very, very, very frightening being. The Amorites were giants. Sichon was their king. So we're talking about like, so God wanted to show them who he, they were dealing with and who Hashem saved them from, um, from having to have to fight with them. Okay? After this happens, the Jews sing a song. Oz Yashir Yisrael. Then the Jewish people sang. As Hashira Azois, this song. And they go on to sing a song about the well. Which is a good question. Why didn't they sing about the well for the last 40 years? They only sang for the well now, after the well came and helped them understand the great miracle that God had done for them with the convergence of the mountains. But it says they sang, and what did they sing? Ali Be'er, rise up well. That's what happened. The well rose up. Enullah, sing to her. Rise up well and sing to her, sing to the well. And then it goes on, there's, there's four verses. Be'er chafaruhu sarim, a well that was dug by the ministers, referring to Moses and Aaron, Moshe and Aaron, who were the ones who dug the well. Karuhu, they dug it out, on the noblemen of the people. The lawgiver, Moshe, was the one who dug it out. With their staffs, because they, they hit the rock and they brought out the water. And then it continues, that, the, that it was given to them as a gift for, in the desert. He went up to a high place. From a high place, it went down to a low place. I mean, as we said earlier, it washed out the limbs down, down into the, into the gorge below. And then the well went down below to pick up the limbs. And then from there, it went back and it brought it to the Jewish people. Back to the tip of the mountain, whatever. And then Rashi says the last words, and the end of the well is that it ends up in the Kinneret, and it's like a big rock in the Kinneret. Whether you can see it today, we know what the well is, I don't know. But this is the story of the well, and this is what the Jewish people are singing about after this story. So, what I'd like to do is focus on the first. Pasuk of this song. They open up the song with these words Ali Be'er, rise up well, Enula, sing or shout out or sing to the well. So, what does this mean? Now, of course, there is Pshat, the simple meaning, and then there is the other ways of expounding in the Torah. 
Today we want to go deep into some deep secrets, into deep chasidus of what is the song, what is the meaning of the song to the well. Um, there is a, a lot of chasidus, there's a lot of discourses on this, on this pasuk, Ali Be'er. Um, I'd like to share a synopsis of a discourse of the third Chabad Rebbe, a fascinating discourse for the Tzemach Tzedek, by which he describes this verse, this verse Ali Be'er and Nula. I think, even though he doesn't bring it explicitly, I think the origins of the teaching of the Tzemach Tzedek is based on Rabbeinu Bechaya. Because as we know, because I looked in Rabbeinu Bechaya, in his, in his commentary, Rabbeinu Bechaya was from the Rishonim, from the earlier expounders of the, or early commentators on the Chumash. And he explains, however, the Psukim, on, first on a simple level, Pshat, then he explains it according to Medrash, according to what the sages say, and then he explains it al derech emes, which means according to Kabbalah. So he gives Kabbalistic interpretations throughout the Torah. And this is from the first people, commentators, who commentate on the Torah according to mysticism. This is way before the Arizal, for instance, Rabbeinu Bachaya. So in his explanation on this Pasuk, he says that Be'er, the well, is a metaphor, is referring to not just to a physical well, but it's referring to the Shekhinah. The Shekhinah is called the well. Um, the Shekhinah is the divine presence with, that is in, in, invested within creation. And, or the Shekhinah is also the source of all of our, our souls. We are all limbs of the Shekhinah. The Jewish people are all part of the Shekhinah. The Shekhinah is called the well. When we say in the Pasuk then, or as he uses the term, it's the tenth attribute, he says, the last and final level of divine manifestation, which that is Shekhinah, where God invests His light within the creation. And that's called the attribute of Malchus, the attribute of kingship. It's the last of a series of attributes which we know is referred to as the tenth Sefirot. This is the tenth one, the attribute of kingship of God. And it's called Be'er. On a simple level, we can say it's called the Be'er, because a well gives water and gives life to everybody, and the whole town gets their water from the well. This, the Shekhinah, is what waters all of creation and gives them life. Fine. Alu Be'er, go up Be'er, is referring to the rising of the Shekhinah to higher and higher and higher and higher to its quintessential source. The Shekhinah is in a state, again, just to get a little mystical for a few moments, Nishkeferlach, um, the Shekhinah descends down, 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 down to create, to sustain finite creations, limited worlds, all the way down to create the low physical world. And the Shekhinah is the lowest of all, the most contracted of all, the, of all attributes. But the Shekhinah is called Ali Be'er, go back up. Sometimes the Shekhinah rises to higher levels. Even though the Shekhinah is the lowest of the divine attributes, she's rooted higher than all the other attributes. That's why the Pasuk says, Ali Be'er, go back up to your source. Then the Rebbeinu Bachaya says, Enula, sink to her, is the opposite. Once she goes up to her source, then Enula draw her light down, from up down. So what we have over here is, in, 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 uh, we'll use the term Aliyah and Yerida. In ascent, first there is an ascent. Ali Be'er means go up Be'er. Means go up, rise up higher and higher to your source. And then Anula, sink to her, means draw her light down. It's a descending light. Based on that 
short little teaching of Rabbeinu Bachai. Rabbeinu Bachai goes on to explain how the next psukim, which speak about Mimidbar, Matana, Matana Nachlil, this is an allusion to all the ten sefirot as they're all light is pouring down into the Shekhinah, from up down. Okay? So now, let's, based on that idea, that's what I think, again, it doesn't say so explicitly in the discourse, is the kernel of the idea of what we will share today from the Tzemach Tzedek. And the idea is as follows. Um, there is a Pasuk in Shir Hashirim. Here we said that this idea that the, that the Shekhinah is called the Be'er, which really means that our souls are a Be'er, because we're part of the Shekhinah, are called the well. Where do we find something like that? Where do we find this idea that the Jewish people, the collective soul of Israel, is called the well? Well, it's a Pasuk in Shir Hashirim. And this is a Pasuk in Perek Dalit in Song of Songs, chapter 4, verse 15, Pasuk Tezvav. It says as follows, My Hashem, you know, Shir Hashirim is a song between God and Israel. Or, deeper, on a higher level, between God and His bride, which is the Shekhinah. Shekhinah is Israel. Israel is the Shekhinah, Shekhinah is Israel. It's the same idea. And God, who is the husband, is singing to his wife, and we, his wife, is singing to God. And, we're, and the whole Shir Hashirim is a love song coming from both sides. We were all admiring our, spa, our, our, our partner, our spouse. So we're singing God's praises, and God is singing the praises of Israel. So in this chapter, in this part, God is speaking, speaking about the beauty of his wife. And God says, Mayon Ganem, a spring of the gardens, a fountain of the gardens. You are my bride, you are a fountain of the gardens, or a Mayon, which is a spring, a spring of the gardens. Be'er Mayim Chayim, a wellspring of living waters. Venoizlim min halavanoin, streaming down from the Lebanon mountains. So we see the Shekhinah compared to water. Or the Jewish people, God is referring to us as, we have a comparison to water. But the water that we can compare to over here, seems to be the three elements to it. Mayon Ganem, a spring of the garden, a fountain for the gardens. Be'er Mayim Chayim, a spring, a, a well of living water. Two things. A, a fountain for the gardens. A well a, of living waters. Mayam chayim, living waters. And finally, streams coming down from a very tall mountain, from snow-capped mountains. Lebanon, Lebanon is referred to over here as tall mountains, which, are, which, which have snow on snow-capped mountains. So on the top, as the snow melts, it creates streams. And those streams, so Hashem says, you're like the stream streaming down from the mountains. So it's beautiful that God is pretty, pretty romantic over here in discussing the beauty of His wife and of His bride. But what exactly is being said over here? I mean, everything is accurate. Everything is perfect. We, the Jewish people, are compared to a Mayan, First, to a spring, to a spring that waters the gardens. Be'er mayam chayim, a living, a living well, a living, living waters. 
streams streaming down the mountain. So the general idea of why we compare to water is simple. Because water is life. Where there is water, there is life. When they're exploring outer space, when they're looking in Mars, or now they just uh, got to Jupiter, and they're looking over there, when you're looking for the possibility of life, I don't know if they think that in Jupiter there could have been life, but wherever they're looking for life, the first thing you're looking for is if there once was water, there could be water, there will be water, we're looking for water, because without water, no life can thrive. So water is the life. The Jewish people are essential to the creation because we are a life-giving source for the creation. And that is because in the beginning of the Torah, we know the Torah tells us, Bereshis, in the beginning God created. On the first word, Bereshis, the sages tell us, Bereshis doesn't only mean in the beginning, but it actually tells us the purpose of all of creation. Why did God create? Bereshis, God created the world for something that's called Reshis. Who is called Reshis? The Jewish people are called Reshis. As it says, Kadosh Yisrael Hashem, Jews are holy for God, Reshis Tfuasai, the first of his crop. So Bereshis means that all of creation is being sustained for the sake of Israel. We are the, we are the soul of the creation. For the soul of the creation, we're the life-giving waters of the creation. Again, where there is no water, there is no life. Where there is no Jew, there is no life. Jews bring life to the creation, give reason for the creation. Israel is the water, the water of the world. We know also, for the same reason, Torah is also compared to water. As we know that, say, just say, Ein Mayim Ela Torah. That the Mayim, whenever it says Mayim water, it's referring to the Torah. Torah is compared to water. Why? Because the same, very same statement of the sages that when we're talking about what is essential to the existence of the planet, to the existence of the world, one is the Jewish people, there's something else that's essential to the existence of the world. And that is the Torah. On the words bereshes, four reshes, but bir also means bays. So the Rashi says, two things that are called reshes. There are two things that pre- predate creation. Or God thought about two things before He created the world. And that is the Jewish people and the Torah. So the Jews are essential, the Jewish people are essential for the creation. Like water is essential to life. The Torah is called water also for the same reason. And when, God, and when there was a question whether the Jews are going to accept the Torah, if not, and God forbid, had we turned our backs and said no, then God would have destroyed the world. As we discussed many times before Shavuos, that the whole power that sustains creation is the Torah. So it's the Jewish people and the Torah. And that's why we are compared to water. But why the analogy of those various different types? Water is an element of water. But we're getting detailed over here. Mayon Ganim, the spring of the gardens. The well, the air Mayam Chayim, the well of living waters. The noizlem in Ovanoin, the flow streaming, flowing down from Lebanon. So what are these nuances? What are the differences of these dimensions of water which is all referring to the Jewish people? And the idea is as follows. Right at the beginning of creation, we know that uh, God created the world and He created man, the human being. And the human being has a purpose. Hashem put Adam Arishon, the first human being, who really we know is the source of all souls, particularly the source in terms of the deeper side of Adam. Of course, Adam is the father of all of humanity. 
but the more inner, inner dimension of Adam, he's the Neshama Kalelas, he's a soul that includes all, all Nishmas Yisrael, all the Jewish souls. And what did Hashem do with Adam Arishon? He brought him to the garden. And what was the point that he put him in the garden? What was for what purpose? He made him the caretaker of the garden. He put him into the garden, to work the garden and to guard the garden, to be the caretaker, to protect the garden and to work the garden. And what does a gardener do in a garden? One of the main things that he has to, is to water the garden. So already we see our association with water. Because if we're to take care of the garden, it's our job to water the garden. That's the most important element that you need to grow a garden. Now the garden itself existed before Hashem put Adam. Hashem created the world and created, and the world existed before Adam was even in existence. So you can't say, essentially, it's not like the world cannot technically exist without the waters of Israel or the waters of the Torah. The Torah of the world existed without for 2,448 years. Without Jewish souls for the first six days or five and a half days, the world stood without the Jewish souls. So there is technically a creation without the Jewish people or without the Torah. But the purpose of creation, the reason of what it needs to be, just like there technically is a garden without water. What is the water? What, what happens when you bring water into a garden? It enhances the garden. It enhances the garden immeasurably. Maybe you can have some stuff growing just like this, but when you have a caretaker who waters and, and, and the plants, that's what really brings out the real potency and the real power of the garden. And you get these magnificent, tasting, delicious fruits. What does that say? That the Jewish people were put into this world to enhance the creation tremendously to bring out the real power that is within the creation that God had created, the real delights, the real fruits, the real beauty of the creation comes out as a result of the Jewish people. What exactly is that? What is the contribution that we make and in the context of watering the garden? So the idea is as follows. And he says, really, really, really an amazing idea. And that is that in davening we say, we speak about the creation, and we speak about the creation with a certain measure. As we say, moina, example, we think about the universe. What's the universe? The, the, the great universe. It's a space filled with what? Filled with stars. Filled with never-ending galaxies, and stars, and stars, and stars. Yet it says in davening, what do we say? Moina mispar lakochavim. That God counts a number to the stars. Which seems to imply that what? That there is a certain measure. If you're counting a number, it makes me an astronomical number. But God knows the number. And He counts the stars with the number. There's another passage in Yeshaya, and Isaiah, where it says, That Hashem brings forth with a number, its host, the heavenly host, which can be the stars, the celestial uh, beings in heaven, or even higher than that, the higher hosts, these are the spiritual beings, angels. And how many are there? Mispar, it has a number. We don't know how what that number is, but there is a number. Which is pointing to a universe that's finite. Which points to a world 
which points to a world, a limited world, that has an end to it. Yet, we also say, in davening, in the same parak, I think, where it says, it says another pasuk, it says, and to his wisdom, there is no number. Now, is there a number? Or not? Well, it's not a question. Because here we're talking about the kochavim. The kochavim, the stars, which is the creation, is mispar. It has a number. But litvunaso, God's wisdom, litvunaso means his understanding, his wisdom, and mispar, there is no number. So first of all, it's hard to understand, what do you think about it? His wisdom has no number. I mean, say, his wisdom is unfathomable. Litvunaso in cheker, we understand. Number is only in things that you can count. It doesn't even apply. But the idea is an amazing idea. And that is that the creation itself, where God created it, is finite. When God created the world, He emanated a finite creation. The universe has an end. A finite end, where it ends. Where? We don't know, but it ends. But does it end? Didn't science now discover that there is an ever-expanding universe that doesn't end? And the answer is, that's where we come in. This is awesome. What we're going to say in the next two sentences is awesome. The reason there is a expanding universe that doesn't end, that's our work, the Jewish people. The work of the Jewish people in the creation is to expand the universe infinitely and endlessly. Why? Because as a result of our observance and our mitzvahs and our service to God, we invite God Almighty Himself into the creation. And God has no end. And when God has no end, that causes the universe to expand without an end. So there is a finite creation. When God created the world, He did create the world in a finite manner. Why? Because the life force, let's understand why. Because the life force that God emanated to create the universe, to bring it out from non-existence into existence, is not God Himself. It's a ray of God. God contracted of His energy, and He emanated a finite ray, a ray of Him that has a limit, so that it can create a world that is fixed and limited. How many, what, where? God knows the number. We don't know the number, but there is a number. There is a limit to the creation that God has created. And that is, as we said before, because the creation comes from not God as the infinite, but God as He contracted Himself to being finite. That's the Shekhinah. The Shekhinah is the, the godly power that God invests into the creation. The attribute of Malchus, of kingship, it's not God Himself, it's God's kingship. It's an emanation. And that emanation, of course, God is infinite, so all of His emanations are infinite. But He puts it through a power we don't understand exactly how. Kabbalah discusses the various different simtsumim contractions in which God can contract and limit His power so that it becomes a finite power to create a finite universe that has an end. That's because the creation comes from the hay, the latter hay of Hashem's name. Hashem is the yud kevavke, the latter hay. That hay is limited, creating a limited creation. But then, as a result of the mitzvahs that the Jewish people do, as a result of our work, the purpose of creation, what's the purpose of creation? 
We all spoke about this so many times. God wants to have a home within the lower worlds. A home means a place where he can live. And a place where you live means that's where you are in all of your entirety. A home is not a place where you come in and you project certain qualities of you. That's not a home. That's what you do in work. When you do in work, you show your talents, certain aspects of who you are. I, I know I, I have this talent, I have that talent, these are my abilities. In your, when you're outside of your home, any other environment you go, you're projecting. You're not being yourself. When you come home, you kick off your shoes, you relax, put on the music as loud as you want, the thermostat, whatever you want to do, you act like a total lunatic, but you're yourself. You are yourself. Everything is removed. You are totally expressed as you are. God wants the finite world to become a home for him, for him, obviously God has no limitations and no boundaries. So that's really an impossible thing, but yet that's what he wants, and he can do the impossible. So, as, and how is that going to be accomplished? Through Israel, through the Jewish people, and through the Torah and mitzvahs that we're going to do, we're going to draw God down from his transcendental infinite self to descend down into this world, and God will come to be shorah within the creation then the creation expands infinitely, so to speak, because now it's containing the infinite one. And this will explain a really interesting... Oh, that's why This idea that the world as it is in its natural created state, before we come and make our addition, the world is finite, and we add the infinity so to, into the creation... This idea, I want to share from you from the Arizal, because he points in the, in the Mimer, in the discourse, he says this idea that all number, he says, is, begins from the Arizal, this is in the Kuti Torah of the Arizal, in Tehillim. The Arizal says, Da, on the Pasuk, Lutfu Nasei Ein Misbar, Da, you should know, Ki kol all countings, all calculations, V'chol misparim and all numbers, B'malchus is in Malchus. Malchus is the world where you can count numbers. Higher than Malchus, there is no numbers, because higher than Malchus, you're dealing with the infinite. And in the infinite, there's no numbers. The numbers are in the finite. So all numbers are in Malchus, because Malchus is the place where God contracts himself into the realm of finitude and of numbers. And he goes in to explain, that's the difference of Litvunasai, because Tvuna is related to Bina. Bina is much higher than Malchus. Ain misbar, there is no number. It's only the numbers begin at, at Malchus. And then he says just an, a Kabbalistic idea which I found was interesting, which is really parenthetical to what we're learning, but just, he says the word misbar, which means number, is indicative to the idea of where the origins of numbers begin. It's the word misbar, because we know in the Hebrew, the etymology of all the Hebrew words really are the essence of life. So he says like this, where numbers begin is in the level of das, that the das of the Ze'erampim, which again, it's a Kabbalistic idea, I'm a, I don't understand it, but not, not no geya, just the one interesting idea is just a Kabbalistic formula. He says it's das that emanates the das of Malchus, where over there there is in das, he says there is ten yudke vavkes. Because, because das includes within itself hey gevurais and hey chasadim. Five and five. So together there is ten havayas. Ten yudke vavkes. Since there are ten yud, again, this is all parenthetical, it's not no gaya to the understanding of the mimer, just, just get the idea. There are ten, ten havayas, ten yud kei vav kays. If you have ten yud kei vav kays, 
Each yud kevavke has how many letters? Four. So if you have four yud, in das you have ten yud kevavkes. So four times ten is forty. That's the mem from the word mispar. Mispar means number. The mem are the forty letters of the ten yud kevavkes that there is in das. That okay, fine. And then he says, but if you take, if you want to get really into contraction and to limitation. It's not just the, ten, the 40 letters, you have to get into the miloy of the letters. Miloy of the letters are the hidden letters. And in a yud, there is yud vav dalet. In a hey, there is hey yud. Each yud ke vav ke has, has 10 letters. That the, there are four letters, but each one of them have 10. Why? Because yud is yud vav dalet, hey is hey yud. Vav is vav ale vav, and then hey is again hey yud. So it's, it's 10. So you make 10 times 10 is 100. So... If you're counting not just the external letters, but you're counting the internal hidden code that's inside of it, the miloi, you have 10 in every Havaya. 10 times 10 is how much? 100. That's the mispar, mem samach. Mem and samach together equals 100. Now why you count the mem over again, I'm not sure. But mem and samach together is 100. Then he says... If you take each one of those ten and you make the miloi of the miloi, that means, for example, the yud, the yud has a vav, you do the vav itself, the miloi of the vav, the vav is a vav aleph, um, sorry, uh, aleph vav. You take these letters themselves and you get their shadow, their miloi. Every yud ke vav, I'm not going to do it now, every yud ke vav ke then has 28 letters. If you do the letter, the children and the grandchildren, the third generation letters, then you have 28. So you have 28, 28 times 10 is 280. That's par, mispar, mem, samach. Mem is the, 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 the essential letters. Mem, samach together are the children. And then the grandchildren, third generation, which are 28 letters, all, all of them together, that is, and times 10, because there's 10 Havayas, together you have um, 280. Mispar, par is peresh, 280. That's the world of numbers. However, Bina, that's Malchus. That's already the contracted, most extended level of God as he extends himself into the creation. But then there is Litvunasai, the levels of Bina that are above. Amispar, over there, there is no number. Okay. Now, the Gemara says, but what, what's our work of the Jewish people? Our work is through our avodah, what do we do? We draw down God's transcendental light, or his, the Ein Sof, into the creation. So we bring what is beyond number into the, into the realm of numbers. That's why it says about the, the Jewish people in a pasuk in Yeshaya, we read it a few weeks ago in the Haftorah, in Parshas Bamidbar. It's in, not, not Yeshaya, in Hosea. It says, V'hoya mispar b'nei Yisrael, it will be the number of the Jewish people, Asheloyisafer, that cannot be counted, made and cannot be measured. We told it. The, the number of the Jewish people will be that which cannot be numbered. And we're not, so why you begin the number? Then there is no number. And the answer is, since our job is to bridge the number and the beyond number, the finite and the infinite, the world of numbers with that which is infinitely beyond numbers. So we, externally, the Jewish people, have a fixed amount of people in this world. And we 
we can, we can be counted. Whole Sefer Bamidbar is called Chumash HaPekudim, where the Jewish people are counted. But that's only our external, outer shell. But as our connecting up to Hashem, we become Ashaloyis Safer, where you cannot be counted. And the Gemara, I think, asks the question, hold it, is the number or is the no number? And the Gemara says, when we don't do the will of God, then we have a number. When we do the will of Hashem, then what? Then we have no number. Because then we're connecting to the infinite light and we have no number. And here's another fascinating the Gemara. The Gemara says in Masechtes Chagiga, Daf Yud Gimel, the Gemara asks a question. In one place it says, Hayesh Mispar Ligidudav. I'm sorry, there's one place that says in, in, in Daniel, I'm sorry, here it is. The Gemara says, Rami, there is a question. Kasevechad Oimer, one Pasuk it says, Elef Alafim Yeshamshuni. Millions, thousands, thousands, which are millions, serve me. The ribay revavin kadmoihu, yamsham shunei, serve him. The ribay revavin and myriads kadmoihu stand in front of him. Yakumen stand in front of him. So it seems to give a number. It says billions of angels stand in front of him, but it gives a number. And there's another pasuk that says hayesh mispar legedudav. Is there a number to his troops? There is no number. So which one? So the Gemara answers. Loi kasha, no, no question. Kan bezman she beis amigdash kayam. Here is when the Jewish, when the beis amigdash is standing. Kan bezman bezman she beis amigdash loi kayam. Here we're talking about the beis amigdash, ain't beis amigdash kayam. When the beis amigdash is not standing, when the temple is not standing. What does the Talmud mean? The pasuk that says a million billions is talking when the beis amigdash is not standing because who said it? Daniel saw it. Daniel, Daniel saw it in his prophecy. Daniel was during the time of the destruction of the temple, during the 70 years of destruction. So then he gave a number. But um, the other pasuk, Hayesh Mispar is a pasuk which was said by a prophet when there, uh, when there was, um, when, when the Beis Amigdash was standing. So when the Beis Amigdash is standing, there is no number. Why? Because the Beis Amigdash is the place which unifies the finite creation with the infinite God. Why? It's particular. Let's get a little particular. The base Kabbalistically, the Beisam Migdash unifies Bina and Malchus, the two Hays of Hashem's name. How do you know that? It says Yerushalayim Shalomata, the lower Jerusalem. Mechuvan is opposite Keneged Yerushalayim Shalmaila, the upper Jerusalem. Vezesh Shara Shamayim, and this is the entranceway to heaven. It's the city that's attached. So we usually think, what does that mean? The lower Jerusalem means the physical city of Jerusalem. The upper Yerushalayim means uh, the spiritual Yerushalayim. But really, it goes much deeper than that. The lower Yerushalayim is referring to Malchus, the finite energy of creation. The higher Jerusalem is talking about the Bina, which is facilitating the infinite light of God. And the Beis HaMikdash attaches them to, how do you know that? The Gemara says an amazing thing. The Gemara says that in the Beis HaMikdash, they didn't answer Amen after a bracha. Whenever they heard a blessing in the Beis HaMikdash, they would say, Baruch Hashem Olam, blessed is God to the world, Min HaOlam V'Ad HaOlam, from world to world. What does it mean? Blessed is God from world to world. What are the two worlds? So it is explained in Chassidus, one world is the infinite. It's called Alma de Iskasia, the hidden world. The upper hay of Hashem's name is called the hidden hay. We don't see that because it's infinite. It can't be apprehended. It can't be understood. It's called hay gedola, the large hay. It's infinite. 
The lower hay of God's name is called Alma de Isgalia, the revealed world. Why? Because it's revealed, God's revealed energy to the creation. What is the idea of Baruch Hashem min olam v'ada olam? You draw God down from, the, from above creation, from the concealed state, Ela olam to the world. And where was that done? In the Beis HaMingdash. So when the Beis HaMingdash was standing, the finite and the infinite were bridged together. So literally, there were infinite angels. When the Beis HaMingdash was interrupted, the Gemara says in interesting words, the Pamalya Shomayla Kiviyachal, the heavenly um, the heavenly hosts shrunk. How much did they shrink? They shrunk into the finite. Uh, what exactly that means, how that would be interpreted in scientific uh, um, research about a period of time where things went the other way during the 70 years of Gullah's Bavel, I don't know. And today we're also still in exile, and yet we're speaking about an expanding universe. Well, maybe this is already a Hachana preparation for the days of Mashiach. But the idea is that as a result of mitzvah observance and of connecting, the Jewish people connecting God's, the infinite to the world, and you create this bridge. That's why also, he says, the pasuk that says, Hamoitzi b'mispar. There's a pasuk that says, So'u lift up your eyes to heaven, Ura'u and see mi bara'ela, who created these. It's a pasuk in Yeshaya, in, in, Yeshaya, in Isaiah. And it says over there, Hamoitzi b'mispar, he brings forth with a number, on their hosts. L'chulam b'shem yikra'u. All of them are called in a name. So what does the pasuk mean? Hamoitzi, like we say, Hamoitzi lechem in Aretz. Let's read it like this. Hey, Moitzi. When the latter hey of God's name, the revealed hey, the latter hey of Hashem's name is the very tail end of God's power, which as we spoke earlier, is only the attribute of Malchus. It's the attribute of God that He's showing to the world. Hey, Moitzi. That hey brings forth bemispar with a set finite number, tzeva on their hosts. L'chulam b'shem yekra'u. They're all called in God's name because we know that the Shekhinah is not God's essence. The Shekhinah is only what? God's name. The name, Malchus is called Hashem's name, just like a king. How does a king, a king, a king's kingship, it doesn't involve the king's essence. A kingship of the king involves the king's name because the essence of the king doesn't spread over the whole country. It's his renown, it's his name. Malchus is, is, the, is, the, is the ziv, is the ray. So why is it? Why is it bemispar? Why is there a set number to creation? Because hey, moitzi. Because it's the little hey of God, the latter hey of Hashem's name, moitzi. That's what's causing the emergence. Mispar with a number. When we, the Jewish people, however, connect what is beyond, when we reach higher as a result of our Torah mitzvahs, we connect. We draw forth. And we create a dira, a home for God in the world. So we're connecting that which is beyond mispar, beyond number, into the world. And then it becomes belim mispar. It becomes without a number and without an end. Now what exactly creates this change? What establishes? What, what changes? What causes God to manifest himself, not his ray, into the creation? That was established by the giving of the Torah, and that is accomplished through the doing of mitzvahs. 
Creating a home for God in this world is when we do a mitzvah. Why? What does it have to do with a mitzvah? Mitzvah observance. Because mitzvahs, here, here, this is a very, very rich idea. Mitzvahs are called, how many mitzvahs do we have? 2613, but positive commandments, 248 mitzvahs to do. And why 248? So it's explained because that is corresponding to the limbs of a human being. We have 248 limbs. But on a deeper, so simply everybody understands this to mean every mitzvah purifies another one of our limbs. But the Zohar says the reason why there are 248 mitzvahs against the limbs, it's not our limbs, they're God's limbs. The 248 mitzvahs are the 248 limbs of the king. So what is the great novelty of the, of the mitzvahs being the limbs of the king? You see, before, before we do mitzvahs in this world, God's relationship with the world is that he is the creator and this is his piece of art. An artist and their artwork, artwork is artwork. You give it your talent, but not necessarily your essence. It's your talent. But in your limbs, what flows in your limbs? Your essence. Your soul itself resides in the limbs. It's not just a ray. It's not like the soul is somewhere up there and a little ray illuminates the body. Even though we did discuss in many classes that not the entire soul comes down to enliven the body. Fine, even though it's not the entire soul, but it's still of the essence of the soul. In the limb, where the limbs are the, 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 the keli, they're the vessel to facilitate the soul itself. Until we don't do mitzvahs in this world, the world, as we said earlier, is, an, is a stranger to God. It's something that God created. There is Him and there is creation. And He illuminates the world with the Shekhinah, which is a radiance, which is a ray of His light. Nothing in, intimate. When we do mitzvahs in this world, what we're really doing is we're formulating limbs for God. And just like, you see, the, the relationship of our soul to our body, that in our, in our bodies, our very soul resides like... In a home, we spoke earlier, the soul itself resides in the body. The entire cosmos is a body. And God is the soul of the world. However, that soul changes. Without Torah mitzvahs, the soul of creation is only a ray of God's light. Because the world does not constitute real limbs on its own. When we do mitzvahs, we create limbs in this world. Mitzvahs are called vessels. Kalim. Kalim over here in the sense of avarim. They are limbs. And when there are limbs, it calls forth the essence of the nefesh itself to reside in those limbs. Now even though we're doing the mitzvah in a physical form, so first of all, yeah, the physical mitzvah that you've done, the purest filling that you've created and formed and put on your hand, that is a vessel to host and facilitate the infinite, the infinite one himself. But not only that, you realize when you do a mitzvah in the physical, even though we don't see it, it's, it's reverberating in all the levels of creation. All spiritual worlds, this mitzvah is happening on some grand scale that we have no clue what mitzvahs mean, what tefillin, what Shabbos, what, what matzah, what shofar, what, what tzedakah means in the supernal worlds. But this is happening on levels upon levels upon levels upon levels. But the one idea that follows and carries through all these levels is everywhere you've just created a limb. And when you created a limb, now God himself comes to reside into that limb. And the worlds are now facilitating and holding and containing Hashem Himself. That's why it's all through the performance of mitzvahs that Hashem comes down into this world 
And in that sense, we said earlier, that's the idea that we water the garden. Mayan ganim. We water the garden. Garden means ganeden. That means the rest of creation. Because ganeden is the deepest part of creation. But once we water the garden and we fill ganeden with God's presence, eventually it trickles into the rest of the universe. And God enters everywhere. We're the Mayan. We're the water. What does water do to a gan? It makes it grow a million more, a million times more than it would have grown on its own. So we're the waters of creation. Through mitzvahs, we draw God into the world. However, mitzvahs can't do it on its own. There is another stage. And that is, being that the mitzvahs are physical, and even in their spiritual form, I just mentioned that mitzvahs are multi-leveled. So when I do a physical tefillin down here, there is spiritual tefillin happening in all realms. So I can't say a mitzvah is only physical. But on the common thread that runs through all the mitzvahs is that the mitzvah is a container, it is a keli, it is a vessel. So even if, for example, in this world tzedakah is a dollar, in a spiritual world it's an expression of chesed, of kindness. In the deep, let's say in the spiritual world, in the deeper human being, physically I'm giving you a dollar, spiritually I'm giving you a piece of my soul, I'm, I'm extending kindness, there is chesed. And so it is in the higher world. But chesed, even in its most sublime, purest, highest state, is a definition. It's a limitation. It has a certain parameters, chesed. And the same as if I'm doing another mitzvah, where that mitzvah is discipline. So I'm doing a mitzvah that represents gevura. So even though over here it's a physical act of gevura, in the spiritual worlds, it's a spiritual expression of gevura. But it is gevura. And God, as we spoke earlier, we're talking about the Orient Sof, we're talking about God Himself, who cannot be defined with any definitions whatsoever. So how is it that the infinite and undefined resides in these limbs? So the question is, well, how does a soul reside in limbs in a body? And the answer is, there is a mediator. It's a fascinating idea in Hasidus, in Kabbalah, that between the pure soul that has no definition whatsoever, and the body that is very defined and limited and vessel that, and full of containers and vessels and defined elements, there is a mediator. What's that mediator? The mediator is the brain. We know that before the soul can reside and enter into the fingers and into the toes and into the, into the digestive tract and into the heart and into all the various different parts to release in every place its particular power that is commensurate, the, the eyes, the vision in the eyes, and the power of hearing in the ears, and the power of speech in the tongue, and in the, in the organs of speech, and the power, and all the powers, and all the various different parts of the body, it first registers where? In the brain. And from the brain, it's translated into the rest of the station. So the train is Grand Central Station, everything emerges first in the mind, from there it's the... the, the, the um, it is the, it, it, the, what's the right word for it? It expands or whatever into all the limbs of the body. So it begins with a central place. A little more refined, a little edeler than that, a little more, uh, a little deeper than that, rather. Um, in Kabbalah, it says that, you know, we're all familiar with the concept that God created us, Betzelem Elohim. God made us Betzelem. How, how do we understand Betzelem Elohim? So on the most Simplest level, it means that the literal, the physical human structure, the face of a human being, is a reflection of God, whatever that is. Obviously, we go a little deeper than that. 
So we'll say it's our neshama, it's our soul. The Arizal gives a very interesting explanation of what Selem is. He says that Selem is a mediator. It's a, it's a type of spirit that's between physical and spirit. Neshama, he says, is pure spiritual. It's pure tsura. It's pure spirit. It doesn't have any chomer at all. The body, the physical body, is pure guf. It's pure chomer. It's pure material. Matter and spirit can't hold together. There needs to be something that will convert the spiritual energy of the soul into the physical matter of the body. And what's that? There is an in, there's a type of there's some kind of a spirit he called a nefesh that's called a tzelem. And it, what it does is it connects this very abstract neshama with a physical body. In, ta, in, the, in the discourse we learned, <coughs> we learned a few weeks ago about it, we had a fascinating Thursday night class about it. Over there we discussed that that's called, that's the intellectual part of, this, of the human being. Similar to what I just said, that the intellect serves as the medium between the physical body and the soul. But we have an intellectual soul. It's not a godly soul, it's an intellectual soul. Nefesh HaSichlius. It serves as this lavush. It's a garment. It is able to encase the soul and from the soul ground that into the body. So this is a mediator, it's called the tzelem. And every level has a tzelem, he says. It has to have a mediator. Now, when we apply that to God, if we're looking at the world, as we said before, as a body, and God as the Ein Sof, as the nefesh, as the soul, there are, and mitzvahs are what? The limbs? Mitzvahs are, I'm sorry, not the world. Mitzvahs, done in the world, they're the limbs. And they will hold God. There has to be a mediator. So what is the mediator that facilitates it? Here's a gewaldig idea. That's the Torah. The Torah is the lavush. The Torah is the garment. Torah is the tzelem. Torah is the brain. God first vests himself in the Torah. And via the Torah, he comes into the mitzvahs. That's why it makes perfect sense. Every mitzvah, where does a mitzvah begin? We don't, have, we, we don't have a book of mitzvahs. We have a Sefer on mitzvahs, the Rambam made. But where does he derive it from? From the book of the Torah. So Torah is an, is an idea unto its own. And the sages say about Torah, the Talmud Torah, Keneget Kulam. When you study Torah, it's as if you did all the mitzvahs. What it really means is, let's understand what that really means. It means that first, the, Hashem's light first resides in the Torah, which means in Torah study. From there, it's translated into the actual doing of a mitzvah. The sages say, Godel Talmud, that the Talmud is great. Shemevi, the sages have a question, which one is greater? Doing a mitzvah is greater? Or studying Torah is greater? Which one is greater? So the sages say, Godel Talmud, Talmud is greater. Shemevi lide said brings to action. So how do you understand it usually? Talmud is great because it brings to action. Simply, it inspires you. Or you can't do act without learning first. But it's a deeper meaning. Shemevi, it brings the light. First, there has to be Jews who learn Torah. They bring God into the brain. And from there, it enters into the deeds. Every mitzvah that you do, this mitzvah was in some degree already in some kind of a universe. And that is in the yeshiva person who learned that subject in Torah first. He had that light first. And from him, it's channeling down from the brain into the limbs. It's a really awesome idea. And the truth is, you can't do a mitzvah unless you first learn the Torah for it first. 
I mean, someone really does a thorough study before the Seder, he learns the entire Mishnah Berurah, the entire Shulchan Aruch Arav, or whatever it is, the whole subject. Other guy picks up a pamphlet and he reads, or even if he reads just instructions in the beginning on the Agada of what to do, that's learning Torah. You can't do a mitzvah unless you first have the instructions. But that's not just a technical thing. You can't move your finger and first it's first triggered in the brain. So you can't do the act of a mitzvah and, experience, and draw the godliness into the limb until it's first brought into the garment, as we spoke before, the mediating garment or the brain. And that's why the sages, that's why it says about Torah, Ota or Hashem wraps himself in light, kasalma like a garment. That's the garment where Hashem rests first and then in mitzvahs. Now, if you just learn Torah and you don't do mitzvahs, then God is somewhere in the twilight zone between here and there. He's not within the creation. It doesn't realize the purpose of creation. Nesava HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that God wants to have a home in the physical. On the other hand, if people are only doing mitzvahs and are not studying Torah, there's no medium to capture Him. So we need both. We need to have Torah study all the time. And then we need mitzvah observance to get, to ground God into the finite physical creation and cause this convergence of Hashem in the world. That's why Torah is called the peacemaker. We say in davening, v'chol b'nayich l'mudei Hashem. All your children are students of God. V'rav shalom and much peace b'nayich to your children. And the sages say, al tikra b'nayich, don't read it your children. El aboynayich, those, the builders. Who are the builders? So the sages say, these are the Tamidei Chachamim, Torah scholars, Ha'oiskim that are engaged, They are building the world. Torah scholars build the world. How are they building the world? In what sense are they building the world? They're building it into a home. You understand? We're building it into a home. Before that, it's a world. But then it becomes a home for God. And that's why it says, They make peace. What's peace? Peace is... The bringing together of opposites. There's no greater opposite than finite and infinite. So who makes this peace between God and the world? Who unifies the infinite with the finite? First the people who study Torah. And then the people who do mitzvahs draw that down. Literally the limbs for God to permanently reside down here in the world. Unbelievable. However, and this is, ooh, this is what the Pasuk says in Shir Hashirim. Please... Hear this. The Pasuk says in Shira Shirim. Another Pasuk. Peregvav. Pasuk. Peregvav. Pasuk um, Ches. Shishem heimamalchis. There are 60 queens. Ushmoinim palakshim and 80 concubines. Valomais ein mispar and maidens without a number. So what is this referring to? Simply, there is queens and there is concubines. Concubines are, would be, uh, uh, the kings used to have wives. Then they had a bunch of women. That, and then, right, so, but what does it mean to God? It's 50 ideas like this. 60 queens, it says, are what? Are the 60 mesechtas, the 60 tractates in Torah Shabalpeh. If you read, count literally, start baruchis, go through each tractate, 60 Tractates in Shas. These are the queen. What's the queen? The queen is the recipient who receives the king. Okay? So there are 60 queens, there are 60 mesechtas where God dwells in. 
Shmoinim Palakshim, 80 concubines, is referring, it says, to the Brysas. It's not Mishnah, it's Brysa. What's Brysa? Brysa is an offshoot of Mishnah. It's not as clear as the Mishnah, so it doesn't have God residing in it in the same permanent. What's the difference between the, the, the queen and the concubine? The concubine, she's not seen as the king's permanent wife. But the king, but the queen is his wife that he's married to. There are 60 Mesechtas through which God dwells all the time. But what does the Pasa continue? Vailamois ein misper. Simply it means without a number maidens. Maidens without a number. What's the deeper meaning? Once you learn 60 mesechtes, once you have shishim malchis, you have 60 queens, then what will that do to the creation? Vailamois. Don't read Valamis as maidens, Valamis maidens, read it Valamos and worlds. How many worlds are there? Ain misper, there is no number. Because as a result of drawing God down into the Mesechtis, which means into Chachma, into the Torah, into the brain, and then eventually doing mitzvahs, what happens? Valamis ain't misper, there's no number to the Olamos, to the worlds, because the worlds increase without an end. Stars are born every day, planets come in new galaxies, and an ever-ending, expanding universe that, ends, that doesn't end because it's facilitating the Ein Sof. Good. And what is our... Good. But here it gets so much deeper. Because, here's the thing, Chachma is Gavaldik. Torah is Chachma. Chachma is the seat, the first, the brain. Where does the soul reside in? The brain. First seat of the soul. Same as also in the ten attributes, it says in Kabbalah, what's the place where the Ein Sof can manifest, can reside in? Chachma. The only place where the Orin Sof is Shorah is in Chachma. The problem, however, is the Orin Sof can dwell in Chachma only because the Orin Sof decides to dwell in Chachma, not because Chachma can grasp the Ein Sof. It says clearly a famous statement that you might have heard of from the Zohar, Leis Machshava. There is no thought that can grasp him at all. What does it mean there's no thought? That Yankel Shmendre can't grasp God? Does it mean that a big genius, that Einstein can't grasp God? Does it mean a genius like uh, who, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai can't grasp God? No. Leis machshava means there is no celestial being. There's no malach with a super brain. And there even the divine attribute called chachmei love, atzilus of the divine wisdom. That too cannot grasp the eight self. God is utterly transcendent of every level whatsoever. Ooh. So he's good. He resides in chachma because so he contracts himself. But what makes him contract into Chachma? What's triggers? What's that pull? Someone has to go out and grasp him, but he's not graspable. So hear this amazing statement that it says in the, in, in the Zohar. It says, Leis There is no thought that can grasp him. He is grasped. It doesn't say he's not graspable. He can't be grasped with the mind. But God is grasped with the yearning of the heart. The yearning of the heart grasps him. What no mind can't grasp. The infinite, the, the, the most expanded mind cannot can't wrap itself around God. But a yearning heart grabs God's essence and pulls him down. The yearning of the heart. And that's where the Jewish people come in. Much higher than the Torah. Torah is called Rashis, the first. Rashis Chachma, Yeras Hashem. Torah is called Rashis, the beginning. Hashem Kainani, Rashis Darkai. Hashem has acquired me. 
Torah is Chachma. And the Jewish people, their souls, even though we're Shechina, we're the lowest, but our souls are rooted where the other side of God himself. And what happens is when a Jew yearns with, an, with a yearning in which he cannot stand the, the restrictions, he can't stand the limitations of the body, he can't stand the darkness. And the Jew cries out, with all your much, ma'od means with all, means with all your heart. Means with all my soul, but that's all contained still within vessels. means when it bursts, when it raptures, and it can't be contained in any vessels, then that yearning of the heart reaches God Himself. Let's go back to the Pasik we said before. Shishim Malchus are 60 queens. Shmoinim Palakshim, 80 concubines. Vailamis ain't mispar, endless worlds. Once we draw God into Torah, there is endless words. What's the next pasuk, which I didn't mention before? Achas hi one is my dove. There's 60, 60 queens, 60 mesechtes. But my dove, my bird, my beloved is only one. That one is the Jewish soul that is crying out from the darkest places of the world, crying out and reaching to the Abish. So that's achas sha'alti. One thing I'm asking for is God Himself. The cry of a weeping soul to touch God Himself draws Hashem down and connects Him into the Torah. That's what's the magnet. That's the pull. Without the Jewish soul yearning, nothing happens. The whole system, Yiddish, you say, toig of kaparis. It doesn't accomplish anything. There is a yearning soul, an aching soul that's crying. Achas. It's a thirsting Mesiras Nefesh Neshama that's crying out for the Ein Sof and that's what pulls God Himself, that's what grabs Him and pulls Him into the creation. Achas. Achas Yoynasi. It's really, really amazing. But when does a soul cry with this infinite yearning to God's essence? Here's an amazing thought that only happens when a soul is in distress. When the soul is in heaven, it's learning Torah and it's doing mitzvahs. And it's even before it comes into this world, it's learning Torah. It can't really do mitzvahs. It's studying. It's enjoying God's light. And we come into this world and we're doing in yeshiva and we're learning and everything is going good and we're wonderful. We haven't been hit by the real problems in life. We're just a good Jew and everything is working out really well. Whether we're a boy or a girl, we're in seminary, we're here, we're there. Everything is good. Living in a world full of light. Everything is wonderful. Fine, that's Torah and mitzvahs. That's not your achas. We're talking about the place where the Balchuva stands. What's the Balchuva? The biggest Sadiqim can't. Sadiqim are the ones who are perfect in Torah and Mitzvahs. That's what they do. So they're starting from Chachma. Once God is in Chachma, they can draw God down. But the Balchuva cries. It says, only a soul in distress. And here the Tzemach Tzedek says something so amazing. He says, that can come either from physical distress or spiritual distress. First of all, it's amazing that it can be from physical distress as well. From the hardships that people have in their life, that's why we come into this world, and we go through hardships and suffer, and there's one point in your life where everybody breaks down. And at that breakage, when you break down and you cry, from the depth of the, and you think you're crying because you're going to be evicted from your house. You think you're crying because you're, a relationship that you broke, broke up. You thought, you think you're crying because of this happened or that happened, chas v'shalom, an illness or something like that, that the person is crying. That's the external consciousness of the human being. The real crying on the depth of the soul is the weeping of the soul for God Almighty Himself, for the Abishter Himself.
That crying draws God down. Minameitzar. Only when there is a kvetch. Only when there's just that a, a, a million pounds of pressure clamping down on the soul. When it, that's when it breaks out and it cries. Or spiritual pain. When a person can't bear anymore the amount of sins that they do, they keep on trying and falling and sinning and again and again and again and again. You keep on getting up and you slap down. So you think it's meaningless. You say, Gaval, what's the whole purpose of this? It's ridiculous. Can't even go three steps up the ladder. Every time I go three steps, I fall back ten. What's the point over here? Well, God needs a couple of people to cry. Just cry. Those cries reach so deep, so high. That's what triggers, that's what pulls the light, that what's, that's what brings the energy down for all the Jews who learn Torah and all the Jews who do mitzvahs. Unbelievable. So that's what the Pasuk means. Let's go back to the Pasuk in Shira Shirim. Mayon Ganem. There is the Mayon, there is the spring of the Ganem that goes through the Gan Edens. That's through Torah and mitzvahs. We cause the waterways, we cause a flow of water canals, as the water is flowing throughout the cosmos to water, to enliven, to add godly, true godly essence into this creation. Fine. But then there is Be'er Mayim Chayim, the well of spring water. You ever go into the store and tempted by that Fiji bottle? I have to admit, once every two, three months, I, have, I give myself the luxury of buying the Fiji bottle. Is there something really special? I think there is. There's something so alive in that Fiji bottle. I don't know if it's just a market. I don't know if it's just a psychological thing, but there's Poland Springs is not the same like the Fiji bottle. What is it? What's the Fiji water? What is the water coming from a spring? What it really is like this. Waters follow water. They follow the flow of water. Water flows through rivers. Where did the water go? Into the ocean. All rivers flow into the ocean. Ocean water is salty. It's not drinkable. Fine. Even water in a river, it's good water, it's refreshing water. Just well, two weeks ago I spent next to a river half a week. Beautiful. But it's not the Fiji bottle. It's water. Okay, it's nice, fresh. But it's not Mayim Chaim, halachically also. You can't, certain, certain tumma, certain people that are impure, must toivel in a mikvah that's Mayim Chaim. How do you get Mayim Chaim? Mayim Chaim is that the waters come from the river, go into the ocean. I don't say all the ocean waters from the river, but a lot of the ocean water. Even the waters... They get salty, and then worse than that, the water start going from the ocean, they seep underground. And these, these water canals underneath the ground, deep, deep, I don't know how miles deep, and the water begins to fight its way back up. And you know what it's fighting through? It's fighting through a bunch of dirt. Dirt and soil, and dirt and soil. And the water fights through the dirt, trying to break up, up to the surface. And what's the most amazing thing? By the time the water fights its way up through the, the tons, feet, heaps of heaps of stones, worms, dirt, every kind of garbage, so you'd think, and it comes through all of them, what happens at the other end? It's crispy mayim, refreshing mayim chayim, the most life-giving water. The earth itself acts as the greatest filter. What else can we say about life? That every hardship and every setback and all the things we struggle with, which we think are darkening our soul, are not darkening our soul at all. It's bringing out the purest water. Externally, of course, on the surface we get dirty and dark. But deep inside, it's the best water. It's the mayim chayim, be'er mayim chayim. 
That's the water on its way up. There's the water on its way down. That's the neshama as it's emanating from God. A Jew coming into this world and he hasn't been tainted yet. He hasn't been affected yet by the darknesses, by all the klippah. Still learning Torah, doing mitzvahs, wonderful. But then you start making mistakes and you start being affected and darkened by the physical challenges and spiritual challenges. And you're fighting in dirt. You're fighting in dirt. But you come out on the other side. There's be'er, mayim, chayim. Fresh water, life-giving waters. And what do these waters do? As we go back to the, the story we were talking about earlier, these waters call God down to God to vest Himself in the Torah. What's the last verse part of that pasuk? Mayan ganim be'er mayim chayim v'noizlim min levanoin streams streaming down the mountain. That's the last thing. Streaming. What are the streams? The streams is the ain't sof light. From coming from Lebanon, what's Lebanon? Lebanon means the whiteness. It's coming from the supernal Ein Sof. Where is it flowing into? Into the Torah that the Jewish people learn. Now, what connects the Ein Sof to descend into Chachma, into wisdom, into the brain of the cosmos, which is the Torah? What causes? That's the Be'er Mayim Chayim that goes up, triggers the Noizlim, Causes the streaming, God should stream His infinite light from Lebanon, from Lebanon, from the supernal whiteness into the creation. And that's the meaning of our Pasuk. Let me do it very quickly. Elu be'er, go up be'er, is referring to the Jewish people are singing, they're understanding their purpose. Alu be'er, go up as a spring, as Mayim Chaim. Enulah, answer, is referring to the descent of the light coming down as a result of that. When we learn Torah, it's supposed to be ta'an l'shoyni imrasecha. My mouth is going to answer after you, going to repeat after you. Just want to conclude with one small idea. This idea is so enriching and so empowering, but it really, really tells us a lot because sometimes we struggle with ourselves, why we have to go through such hardship and why we have to go through such difficulties. So many parents struggle with their children. So many parents have no clue. You try to, you're thinking you want to raise your children to be such a tzaddik, a this one, a that one, a big Talmud Chacham, a big this, a, you know, and you'll be a learner of the kolel, it'll be a gadol, it'll be a rosh hashiva. People have all these ideas. And sadly, it's not always turning out that way. Not at all. Sometimes people get very frustrated. What have I done? Why is my child like this? All we can say is one thing. What does, it's not a question about what you want. It's a question is how the Jewish people connect to God and bring God into this world. And there's a whole, and there's a big, and, and, and it's multifaceted. You have mitzvah doers. You have Torah learners who sit and learn. And then you have, you have a broken souls who cry. And it could be, and here's the, it's not could be, it's true, that all the godliness, all the godliness of all the Torah learned in Lakewood and Panovich and all the yeshivas, all the, all, the, all the energy produced in all the Hasidic circles by fervent davening and, and, and then dancing and service of God and bells and in Babiv and mitzvahs done by Lubavitch, Mitzvah and thousands of people. The energy flow that flows in all of that is from one broken teenager who is crying from the depth of their soul because they can't put their life together. Who, is this? who knows these things? But that's the truth. Because a Jew is always connected. And there is a Jew who ends up on drugs, in rehab, crying. Who knows what? 
but there's, there's a weeping soul. That's tshuva. Not, but tshuva doesn't necessarily mean they're coming and they're from. And they're, a tshuva is a cry of an neshama. These cry, and this, when it comes to bringing Mashiach, when it comes to actually actualizing the ultimate descent of God Almighty in this world, Hashem has His plans. And it's not always up to us to choose. Of course, as parenting, of course, you have to try. You don't educate your child to become the broken Shamo who's going to cry and be the one who's going to cry out to the Ain't Sof and draw Hashem down. But if Hashem has chosen that, know there is purpose, and there is meaning, and there is reason. Because ultimately, all Nishamas are involved in this task of purifying the world and unifying God with His creation. May we merit to see the Geula Shalema. May it happen now.